Hello, folks. It is John Pollock here with your UFC 238 post show here at Post Wrestling. Joined, as always, by Phil Chair Talk as we sit down after 13 fights. Lots to discuss from this card. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing great, John. It's uh, it's good to be here with you. It's been a while. It's, it's... I missed you last month. I just oh. was in a room here talking to myself, and I just felt uh, it felt very empty without you. Well, I mean, it feels like an eternity ago, almost like an entire UFC pay per view event since we <laughs> since we last spoke. So uh, so I'm happy to be here because I've missed it. This uh, was a card I was definitely looking forward to, especially uh, this week. Uh, you and me were kind of talking about it a bit, and just looking at it on paper, this was one that seemed to be a real standout card. There was a lot to like about this show. I felt going into it. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, exciting fights all along the uh, card with uh, huge implications uh, for the bantamweight division, of course, with the title fight, and then two great contender fights underneath it. And then, yeah, this eagerly anticipated Tony Ferguson, Donald Cerrone fight uh, that everybody has been talking about. It it was a great card on paper. All right. Well, we're going to dive into the card. How do you want to go through this? Do you want to start at the bottom or do you want to start at the top and move move our way down? What, What is your preference, Phil? I think I think uh let's 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 change it up this time. Let's go from the top down. Let's start with the grand finale. All right, that sounds like a plan. So Saturday night was their return to Chicago, their annual June stop, and uh unlike last year's card in Chicago, uh Phil, another Phil uh was not competing. He was actually in the crowd, that being Phil Brooks. Oh, okay. Well, that's 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 somewhere where both of us should be is in the crowd and where neither of us should be is in the octagon. So it's good. Good. It seems like things are trending in the correct direction. Uh, one Phil Brooks was among 16,083 that they announced a gate of a uh, $2,034,387. And I love when they break it down to the cent 49 cents as well. Uh, for this, uh, for this big card. And the main event that it all led up to was for the vacant bantamweight title. Uh, I don't know if they once mentioned TJ Dillashaw. I don't know if his name was actually uttered here. I might have missed it, but so I, it, it was. There, okay. there was one moment where Joe Rogan, uh, said TJ Dillashaw and he almost sort of caught himself like it just felt like he it was this weird awkward moment and then they just moved on immediately i've got to say our commentary team tonight was john anik joe rogan and daniel cormier and i feel joe rogan and daniel cormier like rogan at times like he will veer off as as kind of like whatever his thought process is he will verbalize that but when he's paired with daniel cormier it's like these two they don't give a hell what is in their ear. Like, even as you could, we'll, we'll talk about it later with the Jessica Eye knockout. Like, the cameras are avoiding this at all costs. And Rogan and Cormier are like giving you play by play on what exactly they're watching that you can't see at home. And I, I think these two, they're just, they just turn off their headset and they're just producing themselves. Yeah. They seem to just know. That they're just really chasing after the truth there, right? That they're, they just want to describe what's happening. And, uh, TV production people have a different goal in mind. So, uh, but, uh, 
when and when they're paired together, yeah, they seem to really bounce off each other very well. Uh, Rogan shows a lot of he sort of takes that interview style that he does so well on his podcast and he brings it to these fights where he's he's using his uh intrigue to get knowledge out of the expert that is Daniel Cormier. I will say my my line of the night tonight was uh, they came out of a promo for 239 next month and the John Jones Tiago Santos fight and Rogan gets teed up I think by Anik and and Rogan just says no question, the greatest light heavyweight of all time. All due respect, DC. Oh, ouch. ouch. <laughs> it was just like, uh, just like, wasn't lying, but it was just a, a very funny moment there. Henry Cejudo, Marlon Marias. This was our main event, uh, as we said, for the vacant bantamweight title. Cejudo coming up in weight, returning to bantamweight while still holding uh, the flyweight title. And maybe we can uh, guess what the future is of that division. And this was a tale of two fights. In the first round, Marlon Marias looked like, uh, first of all, coming in here looking enormous for a bantamweight. And the announcers even projecting that this guy must be 155 pounds by now. And Marias was just going high and low with his kicks, and Cejudo was just getting his lead leg destroyed. He had to change stances and seemed to have no answers for Marlon Marias. And after one round, Phil, it looked like this was going to be a puzzle Cejudo was not going to solve. What was your uh, thinking after one round of where this fight was headed? Because I was thinking, we're getting a stoppage by early third round. It was definitely looking pretty one-sided. As you mentioned, the leg kicks from Marias were just uh, devastating. And Henry Cejudo was just not able to close distance. He landed a couple of shots here or there, but, but they looked like they were reaching. And uh, it definitely seemed like there was no answers to the puzzle that was Mar- Marlon Marias. Then he came out in the second round, and Cejudo is closing the distance. He was still fighting from the southpaw position for a period of time and just starts landing on Marias with these right hands, and he's getting in on him. He's mixing in uppercuts. Uh, there was a head kick from Marias in response, but the big winner for Cejudo was this tie clinch of his, and he is drilling Marias with these knees. And right at the end of the round, Marias gets in a series of strikes. The last one rocks Cejudo, and it's right as the round has ended. And Cejudo is kind of getting his bearings straight. And, man, listening into Cejudo's corner, these guys are pushing Cejudo, telling him, think of your mother and all she did for you. Are you going to let your mother down? I mean, they these was guys... That, was that Cejudo? I thought that was Marias... Marais I thought it was Cejudo's corner that the 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 stuff about the mother was. Uh, I don't know. I think it was Marlon Marias because I think that the fight was turning against him, and the, and that was Mark Henry. I I feel like that was Mark Henry who said that. I I, right. I could be I could be wrong. They did have the split screen, so it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And you've so, got like especially the, uh, with the corners. Yeah. So I I uh, I so my interpretation of that was just. Because it looked like Marais was fading now, uh, Mark Henry was really, you know, pulling out the motivational uh, Tony Robbins stuff. And uh, that was like a real bad sign because it's like this is there's three more rounds to go. 
and you're you're like it's that this level of desperation. So uh, it'll be interesting to find out if it was uh, uh, actually Cejudo's corner because uh, that would change my in, you know interpretation of that coaching entirely. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that Marlon Marias he. He's only gone five rounds twice in his career, and the last time he did, I believe it was 2012 with Josh Hill. So we're going into the third round, and this is where he's definitely slowing down significantly. And Cejudo goes back, and he's having more success with the uppercuts. The tie clinch that we had uh, mentioned just seemed to be the Achilles heel for Marlon Marais, and he had no... uh defense for that that particular uh, striking technique of his and then they go down to the ground and Cejudo rolls for a Darce choke but doesn't end up getting it Marlon Marias's kind of last attempt at anything is going for this arm bar off his back but he does not have the energy to fully commit to it and you've got Henry Cejudo on top of you and he starts just raining down elbows hammer fists and with nine seconds to go in the third round Cejudo gets the stoppage and he is your double champion Although he now calls himself Triple C because he's an Olympic champion, a flyweight champion, and now the bantamweight champion. And I will say that he is probably a leading contender for fighter of the year after these two fights. Uh, at least fighter of the half year would be my uh, distinction for Henry Cejudo six months into the year. This was what a turnaround for him because you watch this first round and then you go – and fast forward to the end of this fight, it's two totally different fights and not the outcome you would have expected five minutes in. Yeah, he showed incredible resilience, incredible fight savvy. Um, he he just really dug deep to, to persevere through some really tough shots and, and, and find a way to win and just gut it out. It, 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 this was sort of like all of the wrestling training that he'd done to lead to a gold medal it felt like this because it felt like he was just eating the worst of it uh even through the first part of the second round but just kept plowing forward and weaving his way in and and landing shots uh inside and then ultimately landing more and more and then like you said once he was uh, uh able to establish that clinch where, uh, where he was able to get, uh, hold Marash behind the neck uh, with his right hand and start landing elbow or uh, knees from there. I think he he landed four consecutive knees or so to the head in the second round. It, it was really a tremendous performance by Henry Cejudo. Do you think this is going to be the like defining fight of Henry Cejudo's career, because as much as it was really impressive that he ended the long reign of Demetrius Johnson, I feel like this is going to be the fight that people are going to point to with Henry Cejudo. Well, the the fight with Demetrius Johnson was impressive because of the adjustments he was able to make from the first one, but it was still a competitive fight. Uh, and a lot of people thought that Demetrius Johnson had won the fight. This was, there's no question who won the fight. He got a finish. And I do agree that the adversity aspect of this fight is uh, a, will be a huge part of his legacy. We always like to see champions face adversity and overcome that adversity. That's what makes them great. So I think that will continue to be part of his lore. But he's still young and he has opportunities for some tremendous fights. So um, uh, who knows what the future holds for him at this point? 
He also said that he wants to be paid like a heavyweight and told Dana White that he has a hit list and he's going to reveal that hit list to everybody. He wants to fight Dominic Cruz. He wants to fight Cody Garbrandt and the dream fight, the one that people have been clamoring for, Henry Cejudo, Uriah Faber. Just the most bizarre call out uh, to come out of Henry Cejudo's mouth. But he did say he eventually wants to go up to 145 pounds and win that championship as well. Uh, okay. Uh, well, let's pick one division. Let's pick <laughs> one division for now. And let's defend in that division a few times. And then we'll see. Uh, he, but- he mentioned nothing about taking a little pit stop down to flyweight. I don't oh, think yeah. this guy's ever fighting at flyweight again. I don't even know. I don't think there's ever going to be a title fight again at flyweight. That is my prediction. Mm, I will take you up on that one. I think that they will do another title fight at flyweight. They'll just do them like a la carte as they can, you know, find marketable opponents, whatever that means, you know, like here or there. Who who is who is that person right well, now? Who, I mean, who would Henry Cejudo want to have a training camp for at 125 pounds? I mean, the the only real person is probably uh, Joseph Benavidez, um, if he's able to win his next fight. Uh, it's a rematch uh, from a close fight, so I could see that potentially. I mean, is that a bigger name than some of the bantamweights out there? No. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess it all depends on what the UFC wants to do. Well, that was uh, that was the main event. What What is your prediction of where his next fight will be? The very next fight. You know, and, of, and, and do you see him uh, fighting again this year after sir, these two he, big fights this year? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's quite a bit of time left in the year, so I do see him fighting again. Uh, sort of as I was go- talking through my last point, I started to sort of disagree with myself. I'm not, maybe just because of the potent, there's so many more potential big fights at bantamweight versus flyweight that maybe, you know, he takes a couple or three. And then by that point, you know, there is no more flyweights. So, uh, I do think his next fight will be at bantamweight. We saw a great bantamweight contender shape up now. Dominic Cruz is out there if he can is able to get healthy. I know you know and I know that the UFC would love to see him in a in a title fight. I don't know about that Uriah Faber call out either. He's quite a while <laughs> while away, but he's Cejudo's just really looking for the biggest names, right? He just wants to draw so he can get paid, like he said, like a heavyweight. Our co-feature was uh, the second championship fight of the night. Valentina Shevchenko making the first defense of her UFC flyweight title against Jessica I, an enormous underdog here. Shevchenko was a minus 1,400 favorite uh, against the plus 800 Jessica I. And I don't know how many people were looking at these long odds and telling themselves, ah, oh, it's MMA. Anything can happen. Well, you would have been very, very disappointed after this particular fight and and out some cash. Um did did you see any any potential path to victory for Jessica I going into this? I mean the the one potential path is just, you know, wading in there and and landing something clean that changes the direction of the fight, but having any type of like sustainable game plan where she's going to be better than Valentina in any domain, I did not see that whatsoever. Uh, the first round was pretty much all Valentina. She had two takedowns. The first one getting into half guard and then 
as I worked her way to finally get up to her feet. It's the most demoralizing thing. You spend so much time and effort getting to your feet and boom, instantly taken right back down, this time finding herself inside control and then Shevchenko moving to crucifix and trying for a Kimura as the round ended. It was a, a dominant Shevchenko round. And then into the second, it was a body kick that just was painful to watch. And before you could even wince in pain at that body kick, Valentina Shevchenko wound up and just hit I with one of the most brutal head kicks you are going to see. This was as clean a head kick as you are going to see. And Jessica I just nesty plunged onto the canvas. And dude, this was scary how out cold she was. And for, I want to say like three or four minutes, it seemed like she was not there. Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrifying. I, I completely agree. Sort of whenever these flat line KOs happen, your mind kind of races to some dark places and it was definitely scary. Had a few of those last weekend. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Manoa was yeah. um, a pretty bad one, but th- this to me was. Uh, next level. Like th- this was one of the scariest knockouts I think I've ever seen. It, it was pretty bad, and the the sound of it was brutal. Oh, it was, yeah. It, yeah. So uh, it was it was very uncomfortable afterwards because the camera just stayed on Shevchenko, and you have Rogan and Cormier kind of just saying she's still not moving, and eventually she did uh, regain consciousness, and the camera's in on her as she's asking, like she didn't even realize she was knocked out. Um, it was uh, just just a brutal, brutal knockout. Um, and Shevchenko, uh, I look at the contenders here at at flyweight, and you know we'll talk about Caitlin Chukagian next, but that's about it. Like, there's not uh, a whole lot of options here for this woman at flyweight. It is just such a gigantic gap between champion and number one contender uh, at this division, unless we see some people uh, moving weight classes, either coming down from 145 or up from 115. I don't think we're going to see anybody moving weight classes because do you want to get in there with this woman? I mean, I certainly don't want to get in there with this woman. You give me a title shot uh, or not. I think Macy Barber just updated the the thing on her phone about being the youngest champion ever. Be like, you know what? I I don't have to be the youngest champion ever. Not not at this weight class. That's right. Exactly. And we've seen this in the past. We've seen this with Cyborg. And Valentina is is that level of fighter that uh, we've even seen it with her. She's had a tough time getting fights in the past. So – does the title make it more enticing for some women to step up and get in there with her? Yes, but I do think it's still going to be a challenge fighting good. I mean, there are no good opponents for her that, to begin with. And then getting some of these women to agree to the fight, I mean, I hope so. But uh, I don't know. The, she may have to go back up uh, to bantamweight. Tony Ferguson versus Donald Cerrone. Uh this was hilarious. As Donald Cerrone is coming out, John Anik said that Donald Cerrone went from a guy who used to want to fight every three weeks, but now he has championship aspirations. And I looked at my calendar, Phil, and he really has grown because it's been five weeks since he fought last in a five-round fight with Ally Quinta up here in Ottawa. He's a maturing fighter. <laughs> you know what? It's Maybe, maybe one day he's going to give himself uh, a whole – 
two months in between fights. Uh, this was pretty much as advertised, like right out of the gate. They were, this was a great fight up until the end of it. The first round, I thought it was very close. Uh, Cerrone was utilizing his jabs. I didn't think it was like the typical slow start from Cerrone, but it was, uh, he was able to cut Ferguson by the right eye. And how, how did you score this first round? Did you see it for Ferguson or Cerrone? I, I did have it for Ferguson, but it was really close. And the early part of the round was more for Cerrone. Um, he was, he, he, it seems like he's made a concerted effort to get off to a faster start because historically he has gotten off to slow starts and you really can't do that against Tony Ferguson. Um, and so he was landing, uh, especially with a few of the leg kicks early, but then once Tony just sort of found his rhythm, he mm. started to land and, uh, he was just sort of able to move all around, uh, Donald Cerrone by the end of the round, even though he didn't do anything really damaging until the next round. Yeah. Um, if you thought the first one was close, the, the gap, uh, significantly widened in the second because this was an all Ferguson round. He starts kicking at the body. He's landing with his jab and he is messing up Cerrone's face. Uh, Cerrone was able to get a brief takedown, but Ferguson was right back up. Ferguson was entering with, with elbow strikes and then Ferguson. The horn sounds and Ferguson rocks him with this right hand clearly after the round has ended. And you just see Cerrone's head go back like a Pez dispenser from this strike. It was a pretty clean shot. Um, and in the replay, it looked like it, it landed right on the nose. And the problem was earlier in the, in the fight, uh, Cerrone's eye, his right eye was starting to, to swell. So in between rounds, he does the fatal mistake of blowing your nose. This was like Joe Rogan's all-time talking point coming to life. And instantly, Cerrone's eye just completely swells shut. And he's like, pull, he's like pulling at his eye. He's trying to open it. I don't know what this guy's trying to do to his eye, but it is shut for business. And the physicians come in. They're like, dude, you are not fighting. And Cerrone just can't understand. He, he later tried to explain. I don't know what this meant, Phil. He was like, I just wanted them to get some air into it. It's like, dude, this is the most nutty explanation I've ever heard for a guy's, uh, vision being impaired. So the fight is waved off after two rounds and the crowd's pissed because they're thinking that this late punch from Ferguson messed up the eye and Cerrone made it clear it was not the punch after the horn. It was because he blew his nose and said, I just made a rookie mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I'm a veteran. Um, but yeah, I still thought even with kind of the uh, non-satisfactory ending to the fight, this was still a pretty great two round fight. Yeah, it was a really uh, great two round fight. It was super exciting. It lived up to the billing for sure. Uh, yeah, just a shame about the ending. I mean, they, Don Cerrone sort of looked like the Toxic Avenger a little bit at the end of this. I don't know if you're <laughs> familiar with that. Uh, but uh, it was it, – yeah, it was, it was really exciting. Tony Ferguson looked amazing. You're sort of always wondering how Tony Ferguson is going to look even though we've seen him so many times because there's so many question marks around every single one of his fights. But he looked the way that Tony Ferguson looks. And at the end of it, he said he'd be willing to run it back. So maybe you put this on the Abu Dhabi card in case hmm. uh, somebody falls out. 
And uh, yeah, I, I, I'd watch it again. Yeah, and that seemed to be what uh, some people were discussing was having the rematch here. And you kind of felt for both these guys that going into this on paper, especially for Tony Ferguson, this was his 12th win in a row. Uh, he has now had a win streak that has lasted seven years and is still it doesn't feel like this fight was going to clinch a title fight for him. Just the way everything is playing out. We've got the title fight in September. Conor McGregor could snap his fingers tomorrow and be back into this picture that the most likely scenario is a rematch here. And maybe your best bet is just get on that Abu Dhabi card. And if there is some kind of injury, either one of these and it would be Tony Ferguson gets inserted into that spot. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. I think the one thing that could derail the 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 one that yeah, I think this is the one thing that could derail the whole McGregor plan is just if if Habib doesn't want to fight McGregor, if he doesn't think he should get a fight, as we've learned, he's a man of principle. And so if that's if it's more important for Habib to fight uh, Tony, uh, again, this is assuming, of course, he beats Dustin Poirier, then I think Habib's going to get whatever fight he wants. Yeah, it's going to be interesting where, where that shakes up and and especially where, where Tony Ferguson lands, because this guy has just had, he's just consistently been odd man out in this kind of upper echelon of the division. And I think timing has been the greatest asset for Dustin Poirier, who is going to, you know, presuming there's no injury or anything, will get his title fight. And I think it, it all comes down to this timing that Connor is not on the same page with the, in terms of an agreement or else I think Dustin Poirier would be on the sidelines too. Well, th- well, think about how an untimely injury to Dustin Poirier pulls him out of the New York event. He was supposed to fight uh, Nate Diaz. He gets injured, pulls out, and then lands a title fight with Max Holloway. And now he's now he's going to you know fight the the for the real belt. So it's it's like the complete opposite luck of Tony Ferguson. Yeah, right. Like I mean, you know, Poirier's been grinding a long time. So I don't mean to you know simplify it, but you know, usually people don't get title fights off of injuries. And some people don't lose titles because they take a sharp turn on a on a Fox Sports lot. <laughs> Jimmy Rivera and Piotr Jan at 135 pounds. Um, this was kind of our series of decisions. Um, with there were about five in a row here. This being uh, the fifth one. Um, uh, Jan continued to look really impressive, but I'll say in this fight, in, especially in the first two rounds, like these were exceptionally close rounds that the last 10 seconds Jan just put the stamp on each round he was able to land this wild left to punctuate the end of the first round and Rivera's corner was was awesome in between rounds after this left hand drops Rivera they tell him you won that round except for the end I was like, what a what a <laughs> silver lining there. It's like, ah, uh, four four minutes and fifty seconds you won. Don't don't worry about that knockout at the end. Then in the second, it's like the same thing. Rivera comes back even after the knockdown. He's having a great round. And then he gets dropped again at the end, and Jan mounts him. So they're telling him in between rounds, you've just got to knock this guy out. That was the advice. Knock out Jan. And he did not knock out Jan. Um, Rivera did land a solid right to the face. There was an eye poke in here. And Jan got a late takedown in the round. Uh, 
I scored at 30-27 for Jan. Uh, how did you have this one scored? I had it 30-27 as well. Uh, the rounds were close, um, including the third round. Uh, Rivera was able to land with power, but it never really seemed like anything really damaged Dion. It was pretty amazing how at the end of the fight, he'd look like he was untouched. Uh, and he, he had a really good head movement and, uh, he was slipping a lot of shots throughout the fight and he kind of got better as the fight went on, but it was still very, very close. Uh, throughout and those big shots that dropped Rivera at the end of one and two really were the difference. Yeah, this is the first time Jimmy Rivera has lost two fights in a row in his career. He falls, he fell to 22 and four and, uh, somewhat absent in Henry Cejudo's callouts was, uh, Piotr Jan. Yeah. Well, um, as was, uh, another bantamweight who won, uh, that we'll get to. Uh, I think, I think Cejudo was, as he said, he was just looking for, he's looking for the biggest names because now he wants to make the money, right? He put in the work to become a champion and now he wants it to pay off financially. The pay-per-view opened up with a heavyweight fight with uh, Blagoy Ivanov against Tai Tuivasa. Uh, Tai Tuivasa, if you watched any of the Embedded episodes, this guy was the star of the Embedded series this week. I, I wish this guy could just put together some wins because he's he's got so much charisma. He's definitely a character, and uh, he's. Uh, I'm, I always look forward to his uh, walkout song, finding out what that's going to be. Yes, he came out to Brian Adams on Saturday night. Yeah, who do you think he was refer like? Do you think when he says everything I do, I do it for you? Who is the you that tie? Tayavasa is doing it for. Maybe it was that rapper he met on the street this week, Red Velvet. <laughs> Red Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> so the first round, uh, Ivanov, who's a southpaw, uh, is clinching by the fence, and Tuivasa gets dropped with a right hand early on and comes back. He gets back to his feet. He lands a right hand of his own, and then it's uh, Ivanov just landing with combinations and stunned Tuivasa with another right hand near the end of the first into the second. We go Tuivasa is landing with a right and it's just both of these guys trading big shots with one another and neither going down. Uh, Ivanov went for a guillotine right at the end, but the horn sounded and then Ivanov, this was consistent uh, with the Tony Ferguson fight. And here of these guys just ignoring the horn because he kept this guillotine on afterwards and it led to a very funny interaction between Cormier and Rogan, where Cormier is trying to defend it. He trains with Ivanov, and he said, you know, it's it's uh, sometimes you can't always hear it. And Rogan's like, yeah, that's what Husamar Palharis got kicked out of the UFC for. And Cormier's response was, yeah, but that was a heel hook. You know, these, these guillotines. And Rogan's like, yeah, you should never be holding on to stuff, though. Yeah, granted, granted. <laughs> It was just like this guy trying to defend his teammate uh, from a, a clear violation of the rules. And into the third we go. Uh, Ivanov again went back to the guillotine, uh, had him against the fence. He's landing with knees to the head and throwing these heavy left hands. Um, and also it was the the leg kicks from Tuivasa that started to cause Ivanov to be limping uh, near the end. Uh, but Ivanov gets this win. By unanimous decision on scores of 30-27 twice and 29-28. Uh, this was, these were two heavyweights just throwing big hands at one another for 15 minutes, essentially. 
yeah, it was really entertaining in that way. Um, it, I had it 30-27 all the way around, but it was a pretty competitive fight. It just felt like even though Toyavasa was would throw with a lot of power and land, Ivanov just always would respond, and then he would maybe throw a jab or get another one. Uh, the punch stats looked pretty even. Toyavasa landed some leg kicks, but they didn't seem to really make – uh, difference in the fight. It was a pretty grueling fight as well. There was a lot of uh, wrestling exchanges on the fence. Uh, it was. It was a. It, I thought it was a pretty entertaining fight, um, and a good win for Ivanov. Yeah, I had it the same score as you. I had all three rounds for uh, Blogoy Ivanov. Uh, this was a very interesting fight. It was on the uh, the prelim portion with uh, Tatiana Suarez, who is seven and zero, taking on Nina Ansarov and. Suarez, who won the Ultimate Fighter, has so much hype behind her and justified. Uh, many people thinking that this is the future strawweight champion in waiting, but was really tested in this fight. The first two rounds, she clearly won just through her superior wrestling ability to take down Ansarov and control her on top. But then in the third round, um, you know, it, this was not quite the the adjustment that Henry Cejudo made, but she had like a similar game plan of just circling away and making this into like her style of fight, which was landing strikes and causing problems for Suarez. She threw a wheel kick at her, hit with a head kick, and then her right hook starts connecting and had a flurry of strikes at the end of the round. So while this was a clear 29-28, I thought Ansarov had the most impressive round of the three. Um, Tatiana Suarez gets the win, wins by unanimous decision. But I think the winner of this fight, Phil, was Michelle Watterson. Yes. I mean, Michelle Watterson definitely seemed like the front runner for a title shot uh, going into this fight. And uh, Tatiana Suarez's win was impressive, but not impressive enough that we want to rush her to a, a, a shot at the gold just yet. So uh looks like Michelle Watterson's next in line, and Tatiana Suarez will get uh, another fight, but I think it was still a good win. Um Her wrestling is incredibly good. She was able to drive through some great, well-timed sprawls. Uh Ansaroff had good answers for the wrestling, but... Tatiana Suarez's wrestling is so high level. She was able to maintain a, a complete wrestling pace for the first two rounds. And in the third round, I do think, yes, Ansaroff uh, changed the tone of the fight, and she did certainly win that round. I also feel like Suarez maybe saw it as an opportunity to take some time on her feet because she already had two in the bag and right. no, she wasn't winning. Like she didn't really pursue the takedowns that hard. She did twice and failed and good on Ansaroff and she was definitely fading. But I, I do feel there was an element of it that was sort of uh, her intentionally trying to get some growth in that area. I, I think that long term, I think this is a, a good thing for Suarez because I think if she had come out and just dominated Ansaroff, she's going to get thrown potentially into that title fight. And I think for her long term – it's probably good for her to get another like top contender that's a that's like a solid striker like uh Claudia Gadelia or even a, a Rose Nama Yunus who who knows what her next fight will be. I think that could be very good for for Suarez to have uh that kind of contender before she is thrust into 
uh, a title fight. I think you might want to put her in a some type of five round main event. Yes. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't go that long. Uh, but if, if if she's going to win a title, can she wrestle? Do you engage in that wrestling for twenty five minutes potentially? Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a really good question coming out of this, like th- dealing with um a striker and how she dealt with it in the third round, and also yeah, uh, just going five rounds. How this fight would have looked five rounds would have been really interesting. Uh, one thing that's interesting, though, is we've never really seen this style of fighter in the women's divisions that I can recall. Um, the There was the promise of Sarah McMahon, but she never really had that just constant pressure wrestling, almost, you know, f- female Habib type of style. And uh, I think if she is able to um, uh, get the conditioning to be able to maintain that pace for 25 round for 25 minutes, rather, um, she could be extremely dominant champion. Next was a, a bantamweight fight with Aljamain Sterling against Pedro Munoz. Uh, Munoz was coming off that that war with Cody Garbrandt, and I thought this was a tremendous performance from Aljamain Sterling. He was displaying tremendous head movement, catching kicks from Munoz, and just constant with his right hands, his jabs, and like this guy never let up for 15 minutes. Um, into the second round, uh, I thought this was Munoz's best round. He was able to. Uh, withstand a spinning elbow and a spinning back fist from Sterling and then started using his own elbows along with leg kicks. And the leg kicks were really piling up here for Munoz in the second round. In the third, it was Sterling circling around, avoiding his left leg being attacked and then landed a spinning back fist, just stayed really busy throughout the round and looked very impressive here. I had a 29-28 for Sterling, uh, but all three judges had it 30-27. And afterwards, there was a stat here that the this was a new bantamweight, bantamweight record with 174 significant strikes landed for Aljamain Sterling, beating the previous record set by Takeya Mizugaki of 152. So that was a really impressive uh, record that was set here by Aljamain Sterling. Also not not called out by Henry Cejudo. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very impressive performance. And, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, the pace that he was able to set and maintain was just tremendous. It was by far the best performance that I've seen from him. And with those two wins, uh, in a row against Munoz and, uh, Jimmy Rivera, he may have set himself up as the number one contender, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult to pick between him and Yan, um, but it was a really great performance. And the fact that Marias lost, he already lost to Marias. You know, it's a fresh matchup to go against Cejudo. So uh, really impressive performance by uh, Aljamain Sterling. He's looked great as of late. Um, he's really progressing. It's, it's, it's really uh, awesome to see him uh, reach his potential. Yeah. Yeah. Um... He's only 29, and I think that this guy is, um, yeah, this was a really big performance against a really durable bantamweight in, in Pedro Munoz. Karolina Kovalkiewicz and Alexa Grasso, uh, this was kind of similar. Alexa Grasso, this was the best I have ever seen her. She did not 
let up at all for 15 straight minutes. And Kovokevich just had nothing uh, to deal with her speed. And Grasso was just relentless, uh, getting out of the way of anything Kovokevich was coming forward with and was landing knees to the body in the, in the early round, uh, connecting with right hands. Uh, there was one stat that Grasso threw 133 significant strikes in the first round alone. Uh, connecting with 38 of them, so just dwarfing uh, Kovalkiewicz's output. Uh, into the second, Grasso was utilizing her jab, wobbled Kovalkiewicz at one point, and then Kovalkiewicz just clinched against the fence just to try and slow her down, and Grasso fended her off and just kept piling on with strikes, and this just continued for the final five minutes of the fight. Uh, Grasso stunned her with a right-left combination, and... At the end, jump for a guillotine. Like, she did not give any inch to Kovalkiewicz. She won all three rounds. Judges had it 30-27. Uh, I was really surprised by this. This was not the outcome I was expecting, and certainly as dominant as a performance as Alexa Grasso uh, put forward, I was not expecting either. Absolutely. Uh, Grasso had come into the UFC with a lot of hype and she never really lived up to it. Uh, she was put in there with some pretty tough competition uh, early on. And this was the first time that we ever saw that sort of that hype that was talked about materialize inside of the octagon. And it was really great to see uh, credit though to uh, Carolina because she was not deterred by anything. She just kept coming forward. She was like the Terminator in this fight. It, it was, it was insane how, uh, she was never really, uh, undeterred whatsoever. And then Grasso was able to just continually move, continually able to land despite, uh, Carolina not quitting and, and Grasso did not get discouraged even though she wasn't able to put her away. Yeah, yeah, she did. I mean, she was there for 15 minutes and it was just she was against someone that was um, just at another level uh, on this night. So a very, very impressive win for Alexa Grasso at strawweight. Uh, Ricardo Lamas versus Kelvin Cater. Uh, this one ended in the first round after Cater was able to drop him with this left hook and then followed with a right hand and just annihilated him with strikes. Um Finishing Ricardo Lamas, who is now 37 years old and uh, a difficult loss for Ricardo Lamas and Calvin Cater was uh, he improved to 20 and three with this performance. Yeah, Lamas has now lost three out of his last four. He is uh, it's sort of a, a long fall since he was at uh, title contention. Um, yeah, he's going to need to go back to the drawing board and really think about what he wants to do if he wants to continue to pursue this. Um, because right now he's kind of in this, uh, gatekeeper status, I'd say. Then we had our, uh, women's strawweight fight between Angela Hill and Yan Shaonan. And this one went the full three rounds. Uh, how did you score this fight? Uh, I had it 29 28 for Hill, but. Which I just disagreed with me. Yeah, I had it uh, 29-28 for Hill as well. Uh, I gave her, I guess it was two and three. Um, but it, it was a close fight. It, it was a bit of an odd fight. Um, I always find that with Angela Hill fights. They sort of go all over the place. Um, 
I was impressed by uh, Jan with her, this being her first appearance in the octagon. She was pretty composed in a tough fight. Um, but I did feel like the Angela Hill just did more, especially in the la- the last round for sure. Um, but it was close. It was a close fight. Uh, then we had Bavon Lewis and Darren Stewart. And I thought this fight was awful. I thought this was just a terrible fight. Uh, Darren Stewart started the fight where he landed these two leg kicks and knocked Lewis off balance. And it was like, okay, this guy's coming in with a, like a solid kickboxing game. Uh, it's just going to attack these legs. That was literally the high point of the fight because the rest, they just clinched together and it was like, Nothing happening between these two. In the second round, Stewart started with a leg kick, and then Lewis came back with a knee to the chin. Very minimal action here in this round. And then in the third, Cormier is calling it a pat cake that they're playing back and forth. Lewis just got body control from behind, couldn't secure the takedown. They go back to clinching against the fence, and we got to the end of this fight. I had it 29-28 for Darren Stewart, and the judges gave it to Stewart. 29-28 twice, and one gave him all three rounds. Yes. Do you want me to spend more time? No, no okay. I don't. I just, uh, I just wanted you to nod that this fight, in fact, happened, and I wasn't the only one who was witness to this fight taking place. Yes, it, it, it exists in our memories. Eddie Wineland versus Grigory Popov was a much better fight. Um Eddie Wineland uh, came out and stunned him with this right hand, and then he continued landing these right hands, and Popov just was able to absorb so much damage from Wineland. He was cut over the left eye. Uh, Popov came back with a knee to the chin and then got rocked with another right for his efforts. It was a very big round for Eddie Wineland, and he continued into the second. Uh, John Anik mentions... uh, this is something for honesty. Usually, like, on a UFC broadcast, you're going to get guys propping up people's records. Anik mentions that Popov has won his last nine fights, but then he qualifies it by saying that the combined record of those nine opponents was 30 and 35. And I was like, that is a level of honesty you don't typically get on these broadcasts. Yeah, it, it was. And then they sort of had a little discussion about that. And uh, Cormier had this sort of interesting point about this, like, look, yes, these are fights to build up a guy to get into the UFC, but you still got to go out there. You still got to face another human being who's trying to punch you in the face and you still got to make it get the W. So and he did. So don't let the records fool you. Uh Wineland hit him with five successive right hands, finally put him down. Uh, he goes back to these punches after trying for a submission, another huge right, and Popov goes down to one knee and gets stopped uh, with 13 seconds to go in the second round. Wineland gets the knockout victory and then said afterwards, I feel better at 35 than I did at 25. So Eddie Wineland, he's, uh, he's in great spirits. Well, it was, a, it was a good win by a veteran. Uh, Popov uh, fought extremely uh, in a in an extremely exciting way. Um, if he weren't thirty six, I'd say that you know he has a lot of potential for growth. Um, but uh, I still would like to see him in the UFC against some other opponents. This was his first fight in the UFC, and as I mentioned, he's it was a really exciting match. So yeah, let's see him in there again. 
And then the opening fight on Fight Pass millions of hours ago was Joanne Calderwood versus Caitlin Chukagian at 125 pounds. Uh, Calderwood, Calderwood, I felt, won the first round, and I thought it was pretty convincing, although one judge did not give it to her. Uh, and Calderwood was just attacking with these constant inside leg kicks. And Anik let out this stat near the end that she was at like something like 26 or 27 of these inside leg kicks that had connected in the first round, which is an ungodly figure in the span of five minutes. Uh, in the second, though, Chukagian turned it around, and she starts responding with her own outside leg kicks, and Calderwood slammed her to the mat. Chukagian gets right back up. She was connecting with jabs, with right hands, and then there was a trip takedown for Calderwood into her guard, and Chukagian applied a body triangle and was actually more active off of her back um, than Calderwood was on top. And then in between rounds, there is this enormous hematoma that is formed on Chukagian's head. This is not Mark Hominick level, but it was unsettling, to say the least. And the final round saw Chukagian relying more on her jab, and Calderwood was just really tired by the end of this. She's, like, sticking her tongue out and just trying to clown around at the end. And Chukagian, I thought, took the last two rounds. Uh, she got the decision on scores of 30-27 and 29-28 twice. And she may be the winner, but she also may be next in line for Valentina Shevchenko. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, I mean, she won. I, uh, I agreed with your assessment that she took two and three. I'm not entirely sure that she's next for Valentina Shevchenko only because this was the opening fight on the fight pass prelims. Do you want me to read you the contenders and then you can I see mean, how thin I, this is? But I, I mean, this is, I know it's, there's, she's there's, ranked second. She's ranked second behind Jessica I. I. Then why would they put her at the start of the event? Why? Would I have it, no idea. It's 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 like it feels like they're punishing her, right? By putting her like it. This made know. no sense because going into this, you could reasonably assume like there are no other contenders, and this is on the same card where the flyweight champion is competing. Like I would have either open the pay-per-view with this or at least put it in a prominent spot on the prelims on ESPN so that the most people could see it as opposed to 6.15 Eastern time on Fight Pass. Yeah, I mean, especially on a card where the champion of the division, you know, if this is really, you know, unless you have some other plan of where you want the division to go other than the number one contender, then you should, you know, link the two together, right? Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a little bit confusing and, and yeah, I know there's no real contenders in here and that's why I'm saying like d that I, I just see them having a tough time finding matchups for Valentina. Yeah. I'm just looking at them now, like Chukagian, like you could go with Liz Carmouche, I guess. Uh, she's beaten Joanna, Roxanne Modafferi, Joanne oh Calderwood lost. Alexis Davis is not fighting for a title. Nor like once you're getting here, Alexis Davis, Jennifer Maya, Lauren Murphy. I, like it's I could, just. I could see Liz Carmouche getting it right. You know, she had. You can play her almost finish of Ronda a million times, maybe. Um, but the the sad reality is also all these women are going to be outmatched severely, and. Carmouche is fighting uh, Roxanne Modafferi July 20th. So the winner okay. of that could potentially springboard themselves into the next title fight if it's not Chukagian. Uh, yeah. Um, 
I, I, I'm just afraid for anybody who steps in there with Valentina. But seriously, I mean, like, seriously, we were afraid for Jessica today. Like, she, uh, you know, it took a long time for her to regain consciousness. And she's, we still don't know she's okay. I'm sure she's uh, been transported to a medical facility and they'll keep an eye on her. And I, I just wonder how many, you know, how many women are prepared for that. Yeah. Tonight was not an advertisement for the UFC women's flyweight division if you're a fighter and wanting to go. But I am happy. I am happy that Valentina finally has like a real highlight reel finish. Oh, yeah. That that they can. That was an all timer. Like that to me, that was uh, uh, Rashad Evans, Sean Salmon. Yeah. And I think more brutal, to be honest. I, it it was it was pretty bad. It was one of the worst. I'm, so the only other head kick knockout in women's I don't know I I might have the stat wrong, but it certainly drew uh, parallels to when Ronda uh, got knocked out by Holly Holm. It yeah, I think that was I, I saw that same stat. I think that's the only other women's uh, head kick knockout finish. So it, it wasn't just title fights. It's it's actually all women's fights. In the UFC. Yeah, in the UFC. It's still a crazy stat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you look at the bonuses yet? Do you want to – Okay, I do – I did not – okay, I'm going to pick the bonuses. I haven't seen them. I'm going to say that the bonuses – I mean, Cejudo, Marias was a great fight. I could see them giving Tony Cowboy fight of the night as well because that was a great fight. And you have to give Valentina a bonus. I mean, she just, you know, I mean, it was masterful what she did. She, MMA master class. Well, yeah. it, in your uh, your kind of paintbrushing of all those, you basically named everyone. It was Tony Ferguson and Donald Cerrone getting fight of the night and Cejudo and Shevchenko got performance of the nights. Uh, okay. Okay. So, I, I mean, I nailed it. A hundred percent, Phil. Um <laughs> I also, only got one wrong. I only got I, – I, I, you know, there was only Mariah that was the, the incorrect no, he, one. He left, he left with nothing on Saturday. Oh, my – yeah. Uh, also, one note that they did add, uh, they announced that the Diego Sanchez-Clay Guida fight from June 20th, 2009 uh, would be the fight that will be going into the UFC Hall of Fame this year. Do you have uh, fond recollections of that fight from 10 years ago, Phil? Um, I do. I, I remember I liked the fight. I don't I, I don't have as fond of recollection as it seems like everyone else does about it. It was a good fight at the time and we knew it was gonna it was really exciting, but it wasn't like some super meaningful fight or and it was a I, I want you to do the induction speech. <laughs> <laughs> well look, you know, okay, so so on this note, on this note, um Diego Sanchez is probably going into the Hall of Fame regardless. In fact, 100%. he might. I think he's already in the Hall of Fame because the entire season one cast of The Ultimate Fighter is. In you could seriously put like five of his fights into your. Like, no one yeah. talks about the Martin Campman fight, but then there's like, of yeah. course, the Gilbert Melendez fight, Carl Parisian. The Guida fight is pretty spectacular if you go back and watch it. Like, it's. It's a crazy resume that that guy has. Certainly that opening sequence where he's just like launching all those uppercuts. That is like a, a, just an incredible moment. Um, uh, on the flip side of that, 
I am very happy that Clay Guida is getting something, you know, he's getting a spot in the Hall of Fame. You know, he's not somebody who would make it in there traditionally, but he's been in some tremendous fights uh, as a winner and as a loser. Uh, you know, there's a really famous fight that he was in with Roger Huerta where he lost. It was an amazing fight. And he's always somebody who typically he's somebody who brings a really exciting style to the octagon. So it's great to see that somebody like him will get a spot in the Hall of Fame. Over under for Diego's speech at 20 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, I don't know if I've ever watched the uh, Hall of Fame show and seen one of these things. I'm going to say under. I'm going to say under. All right. Well, we will see. That is going to be International Fight Week, and that is when our next UFC post show will take place, UFC 239. Uh, we've got to figure out what we're doing that night because there's a big uh, New Japan show uh, that I will be watching with Way. So uh, I do have Phil's verbal commitment. Phil will be here. Okay. Yes. You've got my verbal, and now you know, you've got it in recorded audio. You know what's crazy? Diego's fighting on that pay-per-view card oh really what's him the, and michael chiesa what's the date july this, the 6th this is july 6th yes so this, okay. this is the card that we have so far john jones tiago santos amanda nunez holly holm for the bantamweight title jorge masvidal versus ben Askren, jan blahovich versus luke rockhold sanchez versus michael chiesa gilbert melendez versus arnold allen sean o'malley marlon vera jack marshman edmund shabazian and julia avila versus melissa gatto yeah, good card. Uh, Luke Rockhold making a, his debut at light heavyweight. We also found out uh, this weekend that uh, Chris Weidman's moving to light heavyweight. Yes, we could uh, get that Weidman-Rockhold rematch at 205 oh pounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually – I like that move for, for Weidman and oh, Rockhold for, to be honest, but especially Weidman. I think he'll do very well at 205 pounds, I think. I, I hope so. I mean it, it's been tough to see his last few fights, so I'm hoping he can uh, – bounce back whatever it takes um jorge masvidal versus ben Askren. that's that's a terrific fight and then i like this amanda nunez holly holm fight i think people are sleeping on holly holm i think she has a very good chance in this fight she has tremendous footwork she has been there and done everything in the sport i you know she can go five rounds um and amanda has just been amazing so i'm really looking forward to that one and it's never boring when John Jones is getting ready for a fight. Yeah, I mean, you just—I mean, it's—it's it's the week leading up to the fight that you're—you're you're just like on pins and needles. What exciting uh, news is going to break in the middle of the night? Well, that is going to wrap us up. I want to thank everyone that is tuned in to the UFC 238 post show, Phil. Uh, it's always better when someone's talking back to me, and I'm not just uh, listening to my myself talk for 45 minutes. Uh, great. I'm, I'm glad that I can serve that purpose for you. I can be, uh, you know, I can lull you to sleep later if that you need that as well, John. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a little voice in your ear. Well, it's 2.30 in the morning, so I, I think I will be lulling myself to, to sleep by myself uh, in moments. So thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, Phil, is there anything you want, you want to mention, uh, plug? What's, what's going on in Phil's world oh, that you great. want to, well, all the well, listeners to know about? Well, uh, I, I guess the, really the only thing to say is that uh, 24 years, John, for 24 years, we've been waiting. And it's not here yet, but uh, on Monday night, the city of Toronto and the oh. nation of Canada, we're ready for it. We're ready 
to take that NBA championship. And uh, it's a really exciting time to be uh, living in this city. Uh, the team has been amazing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's not, no real news there, just something that I wanted to express. Do you, I'm going to end this on, on like, the, the most depressing note, okay? Okay. So, so I, I have a son who's almost two years old. And if the Raptors win on Monday, I know that one day when he's, like, 12 or 13 years old, he'll say, Dad, what was it like that night that the Toronto Raptors finally won the NBA championship? And I'm going to have to look at him and say, I was watching Raw because <laughs> oh, that's that no. I was one uh, of two people, Wei Ting being the other, in Canada that had to watch wrestling that night instead of one of the most historically significant nights in Canadian sports history. Okay, well, what does... Okay, I so really, I really am rooting for the Golden State Warriors <laughs> to win on Monday, so that I can then watch uh, Game Six and or Seven and fully watch the game. That that is my hope. So I actually want the Warriors to win on Monday. Well, what time does Raw typically end at? Wait, Phil, it starts at eight and it ends at eleven. It's a three-hour beast every okay, Monday night. Okay, so so if it does end at eleven and it doesn't go too much later, you're probably going to be able to catch. The last part. I'm probably going to have two screens on, so I will. I will okay. have. I will okay. have the game on on a, on a second screen, yeah. so I can yeah. at least follow. But it, it's not the same thing. But of course not. Of course. But if not. I if yeah. I am a if I've got a Baron Corbin match going on, as I see the Raptors <laughs> celebrating like this unbelievable moment, and the city's going crazy, I'm I'm really going to have to just look at at my priorities in life and and really reevaluate my uh my decisions. But Phil, well, you I do it for the people. You make these sacrifices for the people, John, and the people appreciate the sacrifices that you make for them. That, that's that's, that's why am. they that's why they turn to you. Where where will you be watching the game on Monday? Do you have anything special planned? I don't have anything special planned. I've got uh, uh, I, I I was thinking about so the town near the town that I live, they have set up one of these sort of uh, proxy uh, Jurassic parks. Okay. And uh, the crowd turnouts have been incredible. Wow! Um, so um, I'm 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 actually going to be heading that way uh, back f- uh, on the way home that evening. So I might stop by. Uh, I've been watching a lot of the games at home, and that's been just as fun. You know, comfortable, and I can go right to bed right after. But uh, I'm definitely going to be watching, and it's really exciting. Is it? Is this foolproof? Can, can the Raptors screw this up? I think three games. I don't think they can. Uh, the, the, okay, so can the Raptors screw it up? I don't think the Raptors can screw it up because they're not playing in any type of way that they're going to screw anything up. They're they're playing the exact same defense every game. The, on, the only thing that can happen is their shooting can go cold and then Golden State's shooting can get hot. And then if Golden State can get a couple wins and maybe get Kevin Durant back, but – it just seems like the way that the team's playing the last game in particular was really demoralizing for Golden State. We beat we beat them twice at home. We've played this team uh, six times this year now. We've won five of those games. We're clearly the better team. So for Golden State to turn it around, it's going to be very challenging. All right, I'm going to isolate this clip, and we'll see if it if it's hilarious come uh, July 6th. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll speak with you next time.